You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, July 21st, 2022. And today was all about the central banks. The Europeans hiked, the Japanese did not, and weak U.S. data raised serious questions about the Fed's policy. What does it all mean for the markets and the economy? Here to discuss is David Wu, macro strategist and founder of David Wu Unbound and our very own Weston Nakamura. Great to see both of you. Weston, let's just jump right in and start with you. You know, the European Central Bank move seems like it's further isolating Japan and its insistence on keeping rates negative, as you had been pointing out all the time on Twitter. So what jumped out at you from both of these decisions? So help us unpack them. You know, Jay, um, you know, nothing changed, policy unchanged. Um, They basically uh, have yield curve control in place. 25 basis points is the upper bound for uh, yield curve control on 10-year JGB. Uh, what they did was they did lift their fiscal year 22 inflation forecasts, which are above 2% target. Uh, but apparently that's uh, some more I've never heard before in modern central banking. Uh, had to look it up. Transitory, I think, is what it was uh, basically. Oh, so, that word. So, yeah, I think I might have heard yeah. of that. Uh, well, BOJ, first of all, um, isn't over um, in a sense that CPI comes out in a few hours, comes out later today uh, in in Japan on Friday. So if central bank policy is based on CPI, then, well, CPI is about to come out. Uh, They may be front-running CPI. Um, They could, you know, potentially, um, you know, whatever it is, I'm sure that they have the number already. um, And it was kind of convenient timing for them to do so. Um, But that's still kind of like still left out there. So BOJ isn't particularly over. Um, but what I'm looking at, so what I'm looking at in terms of BOJ is I'm looking at it in the context of the ECB, which did this historic hike. So now that ECB is, you know, plus 50, they are officially out of negative rate land. And so if you then combine that with the SNB, the Swiss National Bank, which did a 50 basis point hike uh, this past uh, meeting, and if they follow through with the uh, September 50 basis points, which is what's priced in the markets, that leaves the BOJ as the only central bank left uh, who is in negative rate uh, territory. And so that further isolates BOJ even more so. So BOJ, once again, just being on pause um, isn't necessarily, uh, you know, no action taken or, or of no consequence if everybody else is moving in the exact opposite direction. Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting. So the the ECB hiked rates, and as you said, it took it was a shocker, right? It, no, really, no one was expecting at least vocally 50 basis points from them. Um, but they also at the same time put a tool in place to prevent the eurozone from breaking up. I mean, isn't that an acknowledgement of the risk that they're creating themselves? I mean, you know, did the, did the market have any reaction to that or did that mute any reaction we would have seen? Uh, so the way that I see, so you're um, you're basically talking about this this TPI, this transition uh, protection instrument. Um, what that is to me is so BOJ has yield curve control. ECB, as I see it, what this instrument is is ECB's yield spread control. And by that, um, Brian, if you pull up that chart, um, what that is is essentially the spread between um, you know yield spread, nominal yield spread between. Ten-year uh, German bonds and BTPs, Italian uh, Italian yields, and so that's basically the, the 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 dilemma of the ECB. You know, the periphery versus the sort of more credit-worthy, um, uh, more developed, you know, uh, like the, the the Germans and so on and so forth, and and how to sort of you know marry that under uh, one one giant sort of monetary policy. Um, how that's going to be transmitted, all that we'll we'll see, but. If they want to take any lessons from the BOJ and yield curve control, which was kind of revolutionary at the time, that was also rolled out initially as a very kind of, you know, uh, like a purposely like uh, kind of opaque instrument. Um, mm-hmm. And then when they first instituted yield curve control, they did it when the market was at JGB 10s were yielding at around 10 basis points. And once they did that, that's when the markets assumed, okay, that is now the level in which yield curve control is. And then they set this level, these these bands. And since then, they've been trapped in the concept of these bands to, to this day. So the moment that the ECB does use this um, yield spread control, uh, that will be seen as, okay, that is the threshold. That is the line of the sand. That is the, the put whatever you want to call it. Um, so they have to be very careful in which they do that. But it really resonates a lot with when, you know, it took me back to when uh, uh, BOJ rolled out yield curve control. That, I think that's a super, super important point. Um, the other important point you continually make with me, and we appreciate you for it, Weston, is that let's not be US dollar centric about this. You're actually watching the euro yen cross. Yeah. Yeah. So this, what's interesting too, um, in terms of timing, not just like with CPI coming up in Japan um, ahead or behind the the meeting, but uh, the fact that for once we actually have two of the you know the largest central banks besides the the U.S. Federal Reserve um, releasing policy on the same day while the Fed is in its blackout period. So this is a you know an ex-Fed, a non-Fed. Uh, central bank policy and central bank, you know, market. And that's why I'm not looking because everyone looks at, you know, uh, Brian, if you look and pull up that chart of the euro, you know, everyone looks at the euro um, versus the USD and then the yen versus USD and they're both getting hammered. But what about euro JPY, uh, which is a significant cross rate um, that is, you know, not performing in the obviously against each other in the same way that they would against the dollar. So it's important to kind of look at that in context too. So that's really what I'm looking at in terms of um, currency pairs and crosses, uh, rather than just against um, the the dollar. Um, so that that's that's a significant thing that that I'm looking at. The other thing I'll say about the euro too, um, and I have a video coming out in a little bit on Real Vision YouTube about this. But the thing with the euro is like 
don't be too short like term like intraday short term and attribute kind of movements to uh events that are happening because going into this you had first of all you have just from the timing of it you have uh at 3 30 p.m you had boj kuroda and his press conference um and 3 30 p.m is 7 30 a.m london that's when london is the fx trading hub of the world that's when traders get in that's when they start to move markets so that like time overlap then you also have the um Nord Stream one coming back online right around that same time and you know uh, gas um supply has been a significant uh factor and driver within the euro in, in and of itself so you have that on top and then in top of that you have you know italian political um you know environment just kind of blowing up and mario draghi and all that too so it's very difficult to discern what is you know moving what um i yeah. i sense that that's why the euro is kind of flat because there's just too much inputs and people don't really know what to make of it but implied volatility is very high uh for both the euro and the end so uh just keep an eye uh on those as well Awesome. Awesome stuff, Weston. Thank you so much. Um, on YouTube, it's West on Trading. And of course, I know you're going to be breaking it all down on Twitter for us as that CPI comes out. I swear this guy never sleeps. Um, we're, we're fun. One of these days, Weston, we're going to catch you <laughs> asleep on air with us because we keep you up all hours, but we appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Oh, sorry. Can I one more one point before I forget sure. to just regarding uh, forward guidance. So uh, Christine Lagarde basically killed forward guidance um, basically saying like, yeah, whatever we were saying about September, scrap that. And then, by the way, we're going to go meeting to meeting, month to month, and we're going to be data dependent. And then if you look at the Fed, the last uh, FOMC meeting or the set, the weekend before, you had that Wall Street Journal article just doing this sort of unofficial intermeeting 75 basis point rate hike to price in. So mm. for guidance dead in terms of traditional banking, except for, ironically, the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan is the most clear in terms of what their stated policy is. 25 basis points is the cap on the 10-year US or on the 10-year JGB yield. That's what it will be. That's what it's going to be. They're the most transparent and clear um, of all of them. So it's kind of funny how, once again, they're isolated, but in a different, um, I guess, more transparent way. So I just want to throw that in there. But, yeah. yeah, great stuff. All right. Thanks so much, Weston. Appreciate yep. you. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So David, I mean, Weston just really set the table for us so nicely. So let's dive in. And I'm so curious with your sort of macro overview um, about what you think about this on the back of the ECB. What do you think of this decision and this concept of uh, spread control that Weston just brought up? I think, first of all, if you look at, you know, the action of the Fed, the ECB, and the BOG, actually make a great deal of sense. I mean, just apply some common sense. You'll see, you know, it's actually quite obvious what each central bank is actually doing and how the market is responding. In the case of Japan, there's no inflation. I mean, Japan is about the only country in the world where inflation is not a problem. Sure, you know, imported prices are going up like everywhere else in the world. But Japan is not seeing, you know, basically acceleration, acceleration of wage growth. 
They're not seeing basically service inflation basically getting out of control. So from that point of view, they're the only central bank that can sit there and say, you know what, we think this spike in inflation is going to be proved to be transitory. And this is also the reason why Kuroda has decided that this is actually a great opportunity. In fact, for the last 20 years, the Bank of Japan, by being the first central bank to embrace QE, has been trying to drive up inflation expectation, which in Japan was always much too low for their own good. You know what? Kuroda is thinking, finally, whatever, because of Russia, whatever, COVID, that's going to help me finally achieve something I never managed to do myself. And this is the reason why I think in some sense, especially with a new prime minister in town, I think that BOJ is actually doing the right thing, especially given the fact that the U.S. is giving them a basically a free pass, if you like. Okay. And what do I mean by that? Let me tell you this. If this were basically still Trump, who's president, well, for that matter, Obama, for that matter, the fact that the yen is so weak against the U.S. dollar, the BOJ would have gotten a call from Washington already blasting them saying, well, the yen is too weak. You got to do something about this. Okay. But because Biden is so desperate right now, needing to basically keep all the support he has right now from his European allies, Japan and Korea, in terms of supporting the sanctions against Russia. So far, I guarantee you the Bank of Japan has not heard a peep out of the U.S. about the yen being too weak. This is the reason why the Japanese haven't had to do much to shore up the yen. Okay, and this is the reason why the Bank of Japan can sit there and do nothing, which is the right policy for Japan right now. It is right. Michael Howe also just on our air a few weeks ago suggested the same thing that that this is not accidental, that the that there have been conversations and that this is coordinated. You say because Biden needs support for sanctions. I I just want to throw this theory past you. He was thinking perhaps it had something to do with um, putting pressure on China, a way to. Uh, contain China by letting the yen weaken so much? No, I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I, you know, listen, Japan and China, the direct trade now is very limited. I don't think the Chinese really care, you know, which level the yen is trading. I mean, if yen is 20% weaker, does that mean that you're going to see more, you know, basically onshoring by Japanese companies from China? I'm not sure. That's already been ongoing, by the way, because of the whole supply chain disruption as a result of COVID. But I don't think that is the reason. I think, you know, listen, I mean, the bottom line here is this. There's no doubt the Americans, for example, Yellen just last week was trying to talk the Japanese into basically joining this whole, you know, basically a cap for uh, oil price for Russia, for example. In the Japanese, you know, by the way, because they're very dependent on Russian oil. So from that point of view, you can understand that actually Japanese support falling in line is very, very important. Okay, for the Americans. So I think that probably has more to do with anything else. But be that as it may, the point here is that in the past, in any time over the last 25 years, if the yen had weakened this much, the Japanese would have really basically heard it from Washington to get their act together to show up the yen. The fact that this, the calls have not yet come, give them a free hand in terms of pursuing very, very easy monetary policy for now. So they're doing the right thing. Is the ECB doing the right thing by being more aggressive with this 50 basis point rate hike? Listen, ECB has no choice because I told you before, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, central banks, you know, they're all facing the same shock when it comes to food inflation, energy inflation. The difference 
okay, in terms of the reality that each of these countries are facing is with respect to wage growth, with respect to the tightness of the labor market. Now, in the case of the Europe, the most unique aspect of Europe is the fact that every time, every year come September, you have ma major wage settlement negotiation, okay, that happen across Europe, first of all, starting in Germany. Now, I can tell you already, <laughs> there is no question that this year, okay, basically the unions are going to be a lot more aggressive in terms of demanding higher wage growth in order to compensate them for the massive spike in inflation, the erosion of their standard of living. Because last year they already asked, didn't get, they didn't get it. So this year they're gonna be pounding the table. Now, I can tell you generally speaking, okay, wage negotiation, the starting point is wherever CPI inflation is at the time of the start of the wage negotiation. Now, unfortunately for the ECB, European inflation is accelerating right into the beginning of the wage negotiation season. And this is the reason why the ECB today had to basically surprise the market with 50 basis points. Not because they wanted to, but because they have absolutely no choice. In fact, this is the reason why the euro didn't do very much on the back of the surprise 50 basis point move. Because market understands that ECB is actually hiking rates basically from a position of weakness, which is quite different from the Fed, which continues to be in the position of strength because there's no doubt there's still more life in the US economy than in Europe. So I think Europe with all the problems, I mean, especially the market is looking ahead, this winter is gonna be a total disaster for Europe. Just look at where natural gas price is trading in Europe right now, okay? In July, we're still in July, you know? This should be a relatively low, basically a low season for natural gas, and yet they're trading at basically levels that are not far from what we saw last basically January, okay, immediately just before the, uh, the invasion. So from that point of view, and on top of that, the market also realizes that Europe has committed itself to phase out completely its oil imports from Russia, which means that who knows how the Europeans are gonna heat themselves this winter, how to basically drive their car. I mean, the whole place might just collapse. So from that point of view, I think, you know, so this is the reason why I think the, the foreign exchange market at least is not that impressed by yeah. actually what the ECB did today, because it realizes that in some sense, this just basically, you know, it's just going to drive Europe closer to the cliff from which it will basically struggle to recover. And let's talk about that cliff. I mean, you know, what we in in earlier weeks we would look at this and say, "Wow, are are we going to return to a situation where we're talking about whether the eurozone can stay together because of the pressures of what we're seeing?" And it seemed, you know, not extreme, but it seemed to, you know, quite a frightening cause. I mean, now we have the ECB basically saying, "Listen, we're we're putting an instrument. Like we we see that there's going to be pressure um, that that it could fragment." Are we, how bad does it get? And is the fragmentation of the Eurozone a real possibility? No, I don't think in that sense. Listen, I mean, Lagarde is a smart woman. She understood, she, I mean, everybody understands. Anybody who's been around basically the block for the last 10 years saw what happened, for example, back in 2011, 12, with the Eurozone crisis and the spreads widening out and so on and so forth. So the ECB is gonna be there to make sure that doesn't happen. So they're basically saying, you know what, if spreads were to widen out more than they, we, we would like, 
more than we think can be justified by the fundamentals, then we're going to be there to basically drive down the spreads. In other words, they're going to be buying more Italy, Spain, wherever, whichever country that's currently under what they would call speculative tax. So I think from that point of view, there's nothing new there. I mean, again, they're basically trying to, I mean, in fact, what the ECB is really trying to do is that, you know what, if we, <laughs> by basically putting this protection mechanism in place, it's going to help them to raise interest rates more easily. Because normally when interest rates go up, you will see spreads widening, okay? Because like, you know, when interest rates go up, people, you know, feel like, oh, well, if I can get basically positive bond yields by holding German government bonds, well, I would want to have a lot more basically, basically uh, yields on my Italian bonds if I'm ever going to basically buy them or hold them. So from that point of view, that's already a given. Now, the ECB just trying to basically, in some sense, they're buying themselves an insurance by putting this yield, I mean, basically spread control mechanism in place. I don't think it's such a big deal. I really don't think it's such a big deal. Based on the the outlook and the and the trouble that the Eurozone is going to be facing with fuel shortages, with slowing growth, with wage pressure from unions, is there a, a trade around that? Would you, are you are you shorting or negative Europe, or do you see a buying opportunity someplace in what is about to come? How are you addressing that from a sort of portfolio point of view? I think from that point of view, I think you know, like again, I think a lot. Listen, you know, I think at this point we all know why is the euro trading down here? Why is Europe struggling? I mean, Europe was supposed to actually outperform the U.S. economy this year. At the start of this year, you know, Wall Street was penciling in higher GDP growth for Europe than the U.S. this year, believe it or not, okay, because Europe was going to come storming back out of COVID and so on and so forth. What has basically put Europe in this current predicament? Just like, you know, what, why the stock market is down 20% year to date is because Biden's economic sanctions against Russia. There is no question that Biden's total war against Russia is costing Europe more than any other country. It's costing the whole world. It's Biden's economic sanction is threatened to throw, basically push the whole world economy into a recession. There's no doubt about that. But from the U.S. standpoint, U.S. is far away. U.S. is more or less energy independent. So Europe, basically, as the U.S. ally who's closest to Russia, dependent on Russian energy, is getting the short end of the stick. And because Europe hasn't got the guts to say no to Biden, they are basically being made to basically pay for the price of the economic sanctions. There is no doubt about that. Now, I do think, and this is the reason why Boris Johnson has now fallen, Draghi's fallen, there will be other casualties on the way. Because all these countries that are strongly supporting U.S. sanctions, their economy is falling apart much faster than anybody else. And they're the ones that politicians are going to pay the price. So I think to a great extent, if you want to have a portfolio basic decision about how to trade Europe, you have to have a view about this war. Where are we in this war? And in some sense, whether you want to buy the stock market, you want to buy oil, you want to sell oil, you want to Bitcoin, at the end of the day, the question now is how long, how much longer you think this war is going to continue? Who is going to basically win? And, to, and at what point can we expect the economic sanctions to be lifted? These are the only questions that are worth answering. So everything else is almost basically just, you know, noise in the system. The big question right now is about the war. Okay. And what is your view on that? My view is very simple. My view is that, first of all, okay, 
the Russians are winning this war, okay? I think the decision by Zelensky last week to fire his head of security, his basically chief prosecutor, is a strong indication that basically domestic opposition against his policies is starting to basically grow. By the way, his head of security is actually one of his best childhood friends, okay? Because there's no doubt that what he's doing for Ukraine is almost suicidal at this point. Now, you could argue that this guy can, can no longer quit, just like Biden can quit, because at this point, you know, if he just basically negotiate with Putin and, and let Putin basically keep Donbass and Crimea, this guy's going to go into history, both Zelensky, as probably the worst leader the world has ever seen, because he would have done, he would have basically given up a quarter of his country, basically um, just because he decided to fight a war that he knew he should have known he couldn't win in the first place. The bottom line here is this. I think this is what's going to happen. Russia is going to be on the offensive over the next four, six weeks. They're going to be basically take, they're going to complete the conquest of Donbass. And they're going to hold a referendum probably sometime in September that will allow them to annex what they've already conquered. And meanwhile, I think that as Zelensky's, the opposition against Zelensky grows, I think the Americans who don't believe in backing losers are going to start to have second thoughts about keeping the war going. I think this is why I think there is going to be an opportunity, perhaps before September, for some kind of basically at least sit-down meetings to happen, which already basically will allow the market to breathe the first sigh of relief. Now, so from that point of view, that has to, that's an intermediate stage. But longer term, I just think that things are going to, I mean, there's no doubt we have now gone to basically, there, there's no return to what we've gone to the extent that we are now at the beginning of a new Cold War with China and Russia on one side, US, Europe on the other. This thing is going to keep going for a very long time. And Europe is going to be a big loser and Germany is going to be a big loser. But I do think that, you know, I think sometime between July and August, maybe August and September, when there's going to be that opportunity, I would be basically staying on top of what Zelensky says and what he's hearing from the US to see if there's going to be a greater willingness on his part to start sitting down with Putin. Because there's no doubt the Russians are not going to give back Donbass anymore. I mean, they've lost a lot of soldiers conquering this region. They're going to keep it. So from that point of view, without offering the Russians something, this war is going to keep going. So I think from that point of view, this is going to be very, very, very important. And by the way, the good news also for the market is the fact that Boris Johnson, who is basically the toughest you know, basically the strongest support of Ukraine in Europe is now gone. If Liz Truss somehow doesn't win, and she's also very, very hawkish against Russia, if she, if, if she basically wins Sunak, I think, you know, we're looking at a potentially different situation. Because also Italy, Draghi was very pro, basically Ukraine. Guess what? The right-wing parties, which are likely to win the next election in September, they're actually very pro-Russian. So I think from that point of view, what we need right now are people who are more reasonable, people who understand this war cannot be won against Russia. In fact, it's suicidal for Europe to continue to support the U.S. sanctions. I think when, when that moment comes, that's when you can start buying the euro. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And do you see a sustained rally for either the euro or a relief rally in equities on the back of something that looks like, even if it's ugly, some sort of end of the war? Or because of the situation you lay out where we are now in a new Cold War, it doesn't feel like that. There doesn't seem to be any relief. I think you don't even need a Cold War to understand that the equity market rally, okay, that we've seen over the last two weeks is basically, again, you know, dead cat balance is a cliche thing. I mean, we all know the bear market can last for a very long time. We are going to, we're now in a multi-year bear market, in my humble opinion. And the reason is very simple. The reason really is very simple, okay? Because the reason why the stock market did so well for the last two years, last five years, last 10 years, was because we were in this disinflationary environment, okay? As a result of a globalization. We started with the end of Cold War One that paid tremendous peace dividends around the world that instead of spending money on defense, we were spending money on education and health care, looking after our people. And 10 years after that, we had the entry of China into the World Organization. That was also a massive productivity event that raised productivity growth, lifted billions of people out of poverty, and the world became a better place. Now we're seeing, okay, of course, you know, instead of, you know, with Cold War II starting, instead of spending money on, you know, education and healthcare, we're starting to spend more money on defense. <laughs> and the globalization has been unwound. So from now, and at the same time, and at the same time, most importantly, is COVID. I think the Fed officials, okay, I think the biggest mistake they made over the past year was that too many of them held out hopes that were completely unreasonable, that somehow all these people who left the labor force were going to all come back once the recovery started. That was what they were hoping for. And that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened because, guess what? Apparently, okay, not just in the United States, in Europe as well, this COVID business have changed people's mindset about work versus life, about life choices. This is the reason why quit rate in the United States is at an all-time high that cannot be explained by relatively low unemployment rate. This is the reason why labor participation rate is still below where we were before COVID. Because people now, you know, having spent some time with their family, they might decide, you know what, you know, I now basically want to spend more time with my family. Maybe women are struggling to find childcare. So they rather stay home and look after their children. People are much pickier when it comes to their job because they want to be able to work from home. And this is a very important thing. This is what is ultimately weighing on the labor market to the extent all these people you expect them to come back, they're saying, sorry, I'm not coming back or they're coming back at all. They now want more pay and more of everything. This yeah. is the reason why the most important numbers that came out last week was not that the CPI number was high, but with the fact that the, the Atlanta Fed waste tracker number came in at 7.1%. I mean, it's like off the scale. I thought the previous month was 6.9% was really pretty high. We came in at 7.1%. Wow. What do you think Jerome Powell is thinking when he saw that number? Let me tell you something else. 
The reason why core CPI did not go down faster last month than was expected was because service component CPI actually went up to the highest level since the 70s, okay? Service inflation, excluding energy services, now bring at 5.5%. And let me tell you this, service inflation is highly correlated with wage growth. So what it's telling you right now in the U.S. is that basically inflation is no longer driven by supply chain, by oil, by food, whatever. It's about basically, you know what? The labor market is too tight with unemployment rate at 3.5%. Wage growth is high. Wage growth high, that means it's going to basically narrow. It's going to erode profit margin ultimately. And two, it's going to force the Fed to hike rates more. Let me tell you this. In the last 50 years, 70 years, in the last 70 years, if there's one thing in common of the 12 Fed hiking cycles over this last period was the fact that the Fed has never stopped okay, hiking rates until the Fed funds rate at least is equal to CPI inflation. Let's call it core CPI inflation just for God's sake for this time. Okay, Right now, core inflation is at 5.9%. Right now, the market thinks the Fed, the last Fed hike is going to be March next year. It's going to be a 3.5%. That's where the gap is. That's so on the back think- of a very weak Philly Fed, right? That's some people are looking at that saying we're headed to recession. Things are slowing down rapidly. Do you not, do you not agree with that? Do you not think recession's listen, in the... I think, you know, listen, we, you know, listen I, I was the first one in the market so talking about recession. I mean, already three months ago, I was predicting that we're going to get a recession before, you know, Thanksgiving. In fact... I think I'm, I, I'm aware of everybody else. But at this particular moment in time, I'm a little bit less concerned about recession than the market. And I'll tell you why. The Philly Fed number, there are two components. There's the outlook component, and there's the current, basically, um, basically situation <laughs> component. The current situation doesn't look that bad. It's the outlook that looks bad. Now, if you were to go around everywhere in the world right now on Wall Street, whatever, everybody's going to tell you, oh, wow, the outlook is going to be terrible. You know, consumer, U.S. consumer been telling you that the outlook is going to be terrible for the last year, but hasn't shown up in their actual spending pattern because, you know what, they're still doing okay. The banks are telling you that they're still doing okay. And J.P. Morgan told you that, and Brian Monahan, Bank of America, just told you this yesterday. So I think from that point of view, what we need to realize is this. You know, you say, well, you know, people who say, well, you know, the Fed can't possibly get rates above like 3%. You know, the economy can't take it. Well, let's think about it. Like, at the end of the day, whether the U.S. economy can live with higher rates or not depends on just one thing, which is how much debt the economy is sitting on. Because, right, when interest rates go up, your debt servicing cost goes up, and that becomes a huge burden on the economy, right, if you have a lot of debt. Now, if you look at consumer household balance sheet, consumer debt to disposable income right now, it's at the lowest level in 25 years, okay? So American households have been deleveraging for the last 10 years, pretty much since 2008. And as you know, millennials were not interested in buying houses. As a result, basically, household debt to disposable income ratio has been going down in a straight line. Corporate debt is near the lowest level in 70 years, <laughs> okay? Because U.S. companies have been so profitable, they haven't had to take out too much debt, okay? So from that point of view, you know, the fact that interest rates are going up, corporate bond spreads are widening, doesn't, is going to not be such a big problem for corporate America because it hasn't got that much debt. If you look at bank balance sheet, bank balance sheet is the strongest all time. 
if you look at what is tier one ratio, whatever ratio you look at, it's gone through the roof because of all the regulatory overhaul of the last 10 years on the dot Frank and whatnot. My bottom line, right now in the US, I'm not saying all the country because other countries are different. In the US at least, the debt is sitting on government balance sheet, okay? Government balance sheet, that's government's problem. The fact that interest rates go up, you know, sure, governments have to pay more, but they just have to take on more debt. It's not gonna, it's not gonna basically make them go bankrupt. Mm. Whereas the consumers, corporates and banks are very healthy right now. They can live with higher interest rates. This is why I'm, I, I am, you know, this is a very different story than was the case in 2008, or 2004, or 2000 even. Because you're looking at the U.S. economy, at least the private sector, has not been this healthy in terms of the balance sheet for at least 30 years, my friend. So it's really interesting. If, if we try to put it together, it sounds like you think there's room for U.S. rates to go higher than people expect. So I would assume that you're not a huge fan of bonds. The U.S. economy is doing pretty well. You're not as worried about recession as you were, but we're living in a world that's dark and dangerous. And we you do think there's going to be a multi-year bear market. So is there anything you're, where do you find safe havens or is there anything you're positive about? Are you only interested in cash? You know, how do you, how do you put that all together? So basically, davidwuunbound.com, which is a blog that I now run, I also have my YouTube channel, David Wu Unbound, you know, look me up. What I try to do is I have long-term views and I've got lots, you know, I think a very articulated long-term views, but I'm also extremely opportunistic on a week-to-week basis in the way I manage my, the three portfolios that we currently basically offer to people as, you know, sort of part of the, uh, the, the blog offering. So basically, I rebalance every single week. So this is the way, you know, I, I, I tell people, like, you know, this whole idea, this whole notion of buy to a whole kind of investing, those days are completely over. you got to understand the long term, but you got to be able to trade short term as well. You know, for example, like, you know what, even if you think the stock market is going to go down, but there will be some occasions where the stock market is going to rally and then you're going to basically, you could be caught with your pants down if you're too short. So from that point of view, it's very, very important to keep your eye on the big picture by being able to move very nimbly in and out. This is why, you know, our, our portfolios have generally outperformed. Our benchmark, whether it's S&P 500, or bond portfolio, and so on and so forth, over the last six months since we initiated yeah. them. David, this was a fantastic conversation. We, we love getting that macro view, and you raised some really interesting points. And I think the fact that you know people have been a bit fatigued by the war, it's been in the news for a long time, but sort of reminding everyone that that's still at the center of so much that's going on, I think was hugely important. So thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for Great having stuff. Me. Come back again soon. And yeah. and we're going to talk. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. I'll be here with Rao Pal. And we're going to talk a lot about the importance of trying to marry long-term, short-term, trying to build a framework so that you can sort of filter all this information that's coming in. So be sure to join us then. Thanks to David. Thanks to all of you. Uh, we'll see you next time. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.